Welcome to another episode of Spew. That is not the name. That is not the name of our podcast. That is not the name of the organization. You're bad at acronyms. Or, as some would call it, SPEW, Serious Potter in an Everyday World. Uh, we apologize to all of our loyal listeners for a bit of a hiatus we've been on recently. Um, we're working on booking a very special guest for the future, so that's taken up some time and uh, the usual summer busyness and traveling. So we're back now and continuing to hopefully provide some insight into how Harry Potter um, can teach us about ways to be an activist, social justice activist in the world that we're living in. Um, But before we get down to it, Justin has a trivia question for me, which I have not heard yet. Um, and he's just going to ask me on the fly and we'll get to see, uh, how much I embarrass myself or I'll just edit it out at later. I do. I do indeed. So, and this is mostly for the benefit of our sister who will probably listening to this immediately know the answer and be very disappointed in you. So as usual, you remember good old professor Slughorn. I do. He may play into some of our discussions later. Um, and I was thinking about him and remembering one of the conversations he had about taking the Felix Felicis potion. And mm. so my question for you is, this is the, the potion that uh, increases your luck and makes it right. so that your endeavors tend to succeed. I, I mean, obviously I know who what Felix Felicis is, but thank you for the explanation I'm for just, our listeners. I'm just, exactly. For our listeners. Definitely not for you. So has Slughorn ever taken it himself? Yeah, he said like three times, right? He had three perfect days. Oh, so close. He had two, two perfect, perfect days? days. When were they? Okay. What were, what age was he? One was when he was fifty-seven. I want to say. Forty-seven, fifty-seven. I just can hear like his well, Jim Dale's voice saying one when I was fifty-seven. Another one was much younger, like twenty-four. Very impressive. I believe you're. How right. close am I? bang on sweet um yeah i don't remember i think he says a little bit about like what he did on those days but i don't really remember that part but but yeah all right i feel pretty good about that yeah that's that's disappointing i thought this would be such an irrelevant piece of trivia that you would have no way to get it (laughs) all right what would you do if you took felix felicis Ooh. oh that's a good question um it's banned for exams and athletic competitions, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's no good. Since you do so many of those. Hey, I had comprehensive exams. True. Which I passed. But it's over now. Thank so. you very much. Um, yeah. Hmm. That is a good question. Something that you're able to do, right? Something that is within your capabilities. You just need a little, the universe to give you a little oomph. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I would just set up, like, a bunch of first dates. <laughs> Try to find my soulmate once and for all, you know? So basically the way Harry wanted to do it before uh, Ron Hermione <laughs> gave him a kick in the patootie. Exactly. Well, I don't have, like, Voldemort to defeat. I guess we could, like, go, you know, break into the White House and, like, mess up a bunch of stuff. But... We could somehow, like, I don't take think they were even capable of that. Desks. 
yeah. spoil some of his plans, make right. him forget all the terrible things he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately, we already have people for that. As well. Yeah. Be. That leads in uh, pretty well. Um, kinda. But we were talking about so. I'm sure you can give a a recap of this um, better than I can, but there was this anonymous op-ed written in the New York Times about somebody who's a senior official in the Trump administration um, who says that they are working against some of his more misguided impulses. Um, Which is a mystery of who this person is. And we were talking about some of our favorite mysteries within the Harry Potter universe. Indeed, indeed. Are there any questions that keep you up at night about why the plot is the way it is? Well, I've heard one... might be plot holes. I've heard one explanation for this, but I'm still not 100% satisfied, which is, why didn't the Horcrux die, the one that's inside Harry, why didn't it die when he was pierced with the Basilisk Fang? Since Basilisk Venom is supposedly destroys horcruxes and so you know the explanation is that a the fox's phoenix tears just healed it too quickly before the horcrux Mm -hmm. could fully die or b the whole thing about how like a horcrux is the opposite of a soul and so the carrier of the horcrux needs to die itself and since harry didn't die Neither did the Horcrux. I'm not... I kind of forget exactly how they worded that when Hermione's explaining about Horcruxes and souls and such, but I don't know. Still seems fishy to me. Yeah. I'm skeptical. Like, how how... It seemed like when Harry stabbed the diary with the Basilisk Fang, uh... It died immediately, you know? The Horcrux, like... You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that's a tricky one. The okay. other one, also, which is much more inconsequential, is that um, Percy Weasley, like, takes ten points away from Gryffindor as a prefect in the first <laughs> book, and then later on, they say that prefects don't have the power to take away points because then the Inquisitorial Squad gets that power, and it's, like, you know, way too much power for kids to have, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we can pretty much put that down to Percy being a jackass. Yeah. Not that there's any support for that kind of behavior. In right. characterization. Right. What keeps me up at night, um, apart from just my general insomnia, mm-hmm. is... Uh, <laughs> the whole premise of the, the Triwizard Tournament in book four mm. is that Moody is trying to, well, the fake Moody, to help Harry win so that he can get to the Triwizard Cup, which he has cleverly transformed into a port key. Mm-hmm. And I'm very impressed by the whole, the intricacy of the plan. Very, very well done. Um, but you'd think he could just transform any old thing into a port key invite Harry to visit him in his office and toss the little billiard ball that is now a port key or mm-hmm. 
some kind of dark detector or right well at Harry Harry having great reflexes being a secret and all that will catch it and be transported to the graveyard and killed I feel like that would have been an equally good plan but uh, I guess it wasn't complicated enough yeah I mean maybe it would have been like theoretically the plan works out right and then Harry doesn't survive and if that were the case maybe uh Moody slash Barty Crouch never would have been caught. And maybe if he was just alone in his office when Harry walks in, uh, put put two and two together. On the other hand, people knew that Crouch Moody was the one who volunteered to take the cup to the center of the maze. So they probably figured out that he must have done something to it. Um, yeah. It is a mystery. We may never know. Indeed, indeed. Maybe Voldemort just wanted, like, Harry to feel really triumphant right before he killed him. Oh, now that's just plain dickish. Yeah. Not that we have any evidence that Voldemort would be a dick. No, none at all. So, good news on the mystery front. Mm Mm-hmm. Segwaying very smoothly into our topic... I can pretty much guarantee you that we will at some point know who wrote this op-ed piece in the New York Times that you mentioned earlier. You would think. You would think. We don't know that right now. By the time this podcast goes up, that information may very well be public um, because anything that happens in this White House tends to leak out eventually, Um, whether it's through anonymous leaks in the newspaper or through tell-all books like Michael Wolff's book that seem to be half made up or tell-all books like Bob Woodward's that seem to be only like 5% made up. And at some point, whoever this person is will probably be dying of some incurable disease and will will want to tell the world, hey, I was Lodestar. Right. Can you imagine when like kids are growing up in 40 years and they're watching like this documentary series on the Trump administration, they're going to be like, what the hell was going on? I think they will have many questions. First of all, why was everybody fixated on the word lodestar? I think that will be, that'll be like question number 562. Probably. Uh, and like, but yeah, it's just going to be, but I figure once we get out of this situation one way or the other, when they do the whole documentaries and autobiographies and all of that, this will inevitably be revealed at that time, if not before. So just to recap what we're talking about, um, as you mentioned last Wednesday, um, as we're recording this podcast, the New York Times took a very unusual step and uh, decided to publish an anonymous opinion piece, which they very rarely do. Um, which was allegedly written by a senior official in the Trump administration, whatever senior official might mean, who paints a picture of a deeply unstable president who follows his own whims, ignores the advice of his staff, seems unable to understand or remember basic facts about the world, none of which is necessarily news to anybody who reads a paper. Fortunately, the op-ed author assures us he or she belongs to a group of staffers who are working to stall the administration from within um, they are working to block the president's, quote, more misguided impulses until he's out of office. 
So there's been a lot of a lot of brouhaha about who this person is, um, what they're referring to, what their agenda is. Are they are they trying to protect America from this menace? Are they trying to burnish their own image? Why write this op-ed piece now? Um, does that serve their agenda? But what I'm the question I'm really interested in, and I. I've been turning this around in my head quite a lot, and I really have no answer. Um, if you're working within an, an organization that you know is corrupt, that you know harbors some deeply unstable elements, and you know that left to its own devices, the head of your organization will do some truly disturbed things, and you maybe have the power to stop it, or at least some of those things, is it is it moral? Is it ethical to work within that corrupt organization? And how do you make sure that you can live with, with yourself? How do you make sure that you aren't just slowly buying into the cause? Right. So I think there's a few different questions here. And, well, really, there's just one. But there's a few different elements within that question. And one thing that I think we should make clear before we, we tackle that is that it seems like based on what this anonymous author says, um, that they are not someone that you or I would support politically and that they're rather than this, um, radical Trumpist Trump supporter person, they are a marginally, um, more palatable run of the mill Republican who um, still is in line with all of this imperialist ideology and talks about strength of the military and um, tax breaks and all of those supposed successes of the Trump administration. And so we don't want to go, we just want to make it clear we're not like putting our stamp of approval on this person, whoever they are, even That's if we much. do find some things that... Um, could be beneficial for someone in that position, uh, being in the, in an organization like that, trying to tackle things from the inside. Of course, I immediately think outside of Harry Potter for a moment of Ron Swanson what? from Parks and Recreation. We'll hop back into the we'll hop back into the Harry Potter thing quick in a second. Um, because he always Ron Swanson is a big libertarian. Again, we probably wouldn't agree with him, but um, he talks about how he works for the government because he wants to go deeper into the belly of the beast to destroy the whole thing because the government is just a bunch of people who steal your money and uh, lots of bureaucratic nothingness. So, anyways, um, but we also talked about a few other Harry Potter corollaries, um, my immediate one was thinking about McGonagall and Flitwick and some of the other uh, allies of Harry and Dumbledore and that whole cause who stayed on as teachers at Hogwarts to protect the kids even after Snape uh, and the Caros and essentially Voldemort had control over Hogwarts in the last book. Mm -hmm. And so I think... Those folks are probably 
we're much bigger fans of them than we are of whoever this anonymous author is. And they essentially made some of the same decisions and were just trying to be there to prevent further harm from happening when they very easily could have uh, quit in protest or, you know, gotten out of there and tried to attack from the outside. Um, but I don't know that they would have been really successful in that unless they could somehow contact Harry and offer them assistance, but I don't think that was really a realistic option either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, clearly not a perfect parallel, uh, because McGonagall, Flitwick, etc., were known to be allies of Dumbledore, and I'm sure if Voldemort had had his way, he would have just kicked them out. Uh, but that would have made it rather obvious what was happening at Hogwarts. I, I also thought about the situation of the Weasleys, who continue to work for the Ministry um, after Voldemort returns throughout the administrations of Fudge and Scrimgeour, and even when Pius Thickness takes over as Minister of Magic, by which point Voldemort is essentially running the Ministry through his puppet. Um, We know that Arthur Weasley, at least, is still working at the Ministry because Harry runs into him when they're trying to, uh, when they infiltrate the Ministry and steal the Horcrux that Umbridge has somehow gotten her hands on. And I didn't really wonder about that at the time, but I do sort of, I ask myself what exactly he was doing there. Was was he gathering information for the Order? Is he just trying to protect his cover? Does he think if he goes to work every day and acts as though this is normal, that... The, the powers that be within the ministry won't come down too hard on his family, won't ask too many questions about just where on earth Ron is right now. I don't know. I think it's kind of weird behavior, to be honest. I... I have questions. I mean, one thing is that... What, what were his other alternatives? Right? They could just take the family and go into hiding... Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, other people did. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to probably get anywhere with that either. Um, and so I th- it seems like a, a pretty good accomplishment considering that he's a well-known Dumbledore ally, that he was able to stay safe and stay within the ministry Um to some extent, and, you know, like, even in that little scene, he tries to stand up to Runcorn, and so you can imagine him trying to kind of undermine or push back against um, all of the xenophobia that's going on at the Ministry at the time, where they're bringing in the, they have the Muggle Registration Committee, and they're bringing in people to force them to show, um, show proof that they're wizards or have have magical blood in in their lineage um which i think is a noble goal again it's not like it's not really the same as what this what our impressions of this anonymous author are because it doesn't seem like they you know worked to prevent child separation at the border right. or prevent the no tolerance policy on immigration. 
you know, right. or some of the more social justice things that I'm sure Arthur would have done. Um, but again, this is one of those issues where we just like don't see enough into the successes of undercover agents in Harry Potter, which is also kind of the same problem with um, you brought up Snape, um, or we had talked about Snape before the podcast being an example of somebody who is working on the inside to try to take down a evil organization. But we really don't have much evidence that he was able to curb Voldemort's more what does the author say? Misguided impulses. Um, and I think Voldemort and Trump, as much as they have similarities, are different in that Voldemort doesn't really waffle on his opinions and you can't really do things <laughs> behind his back that he doesn't find out about that you're actually like slowing down his agenda. He doesn't trust anybody. His Death Eaters are just puppets that he controls with an iron fist and he wouldn't like change his mind on anything ever. He just goes forward trying to take over the world. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, Snape does say the one thing Snape does say is that at one point when he's talking to Dumbledore, he says that lately he's only, um, it's like lately only people have died that I couldn't save or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that quote. Let me see if I can find it for you. But you make a good point. Um, when we talk about when we talk about Snape as a spy within the Death Eaters, it's a, a fundamentally different goal, right, than whoever this op-ed writer is. Um, my buddy Ezra is really hoping that this person becomes known as Lodestar in the, the same way that uh, Deep Throat became known as Deep Throat. Um, right. In the case of Snape, you've got somebody who's trying to provide intelligence on the, on the enemy, um, who does not agree with the goals of the Death Eaters, but pretends that he does so that he can feed information to the Order of the Phoenix. Um, you and I disagree on how effective he is. Um, mm -hmm. And... And we really don't have a lot of information about just what he actually provides as far as as far as information. But setting that aside, um, a lot of folks have made the point that you just did that the writer of the New York Times op-ed does not seem to object to a lot of the actions that this administration is taking part in, keeping children in cages, keeping out Muslim immigrants, withdrawing the United States from the Paris Climate Accords, um, basically using the, the Justice Department as a blunt instrument. Uh, um, he or she seems to be fine with that sort of thing because there's so much within the administration, so much in, in Donald Trump's aims that he does agree with. Um, so here he's just trying to prevent the president from taking actions that are just generally crazy um, that that wouldn't serve the president's aims yeah and so then despite all that i think your question is still valid even in this case because it's impossible to quantify i think but i wonder 
just thinking about objectively is this person and their their coalition of Republican people who have some sort of principles about how democracy should go, but no actual, like, moral upstanding, um, are they preventing more harm than some of the other people who we really like, our favorite people who we agree with, but are on the outside just shouting and you know, speaking out against what everything that's going on, but have little power to actually prevent it or work against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tough question. I think we are learning a little bit more about part of that. Um, so you know about the Bob Woodward book that came out recently? I know that you know about it. So um, I just picked up a copy. Um, it was probably the first time in years that I've actually paid full sticker price for a book at a bookstore. Um, and you go to bookstores? Uh, well, I don't usually go to new bookstores. So this was kind of weird. I felt like an interloper. Um, it was very well lit, and I wasn't you know, bumping my head on low ceilings, and the, the books were in orderly rows and organized by author and title and genre. It was very strange. Uh, Odd. And books are way too expensive. Anyway... He tells this story where um, Trump had decided that we needed to pull out of a free trade deal with South Korea because we have a trade deficit with them because we're uh, we're buying too much from them and selling too little. And he says, you know, we just got to stop this. We're stationing all these troops in South Korea. We're paying for that. We shouldn't be paying for that. And turns out we do all of this because... South Korea is an incredible source of intelligence for us. They, our agreement with them allows us to know within seconds if North Korea ever launches a missile that might hit the American mainland. Whereas if we had to rely on our, our intelligence sources in Alaska, um, it would take something on the order of 15 minutes before we knew that North Korea had launched a, a missile strike like that. So turns out there are very good reasons for keeping our military presence in South Korea. And even if a trade deficit were a problem, it would be worth suffering that sort of thing. But Trump says, no, I'm, I'm pulling out. This is not a good idea. Can't do this. And so he has this, this uh, signed, this, this document ready to sign, pulling out of the trade deal on his desk. And one of the president's economic advisors just goes into the Oval Office, takes the paper off his desk, and walks out. And the president forgets about it for a while. On the one hand, pulling out of the deal probably would have been catastrophic. I don't really know anything more about these sorts of things than what I just told you. But it seems like a good bargain. seems like the sort of thing that might prevent World War III. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are at least a couple of staffers in the White House who, over the years, have just taken documents off of President Trump's desk with the hope that he will forget about whatever the thing was that he was angry about. And usually, he does for a while, and then they have to steal another document. So, on the one hand, that's terrifying, because that's not how government works. But on the other hand, that's a concrete example of something terrible that Trump might have done. 
that they have prevented. All of this, of course, I don't even have to say, but it's further evidence of Trump's complete lack of qualifications for his job, because you would hope that somebody wouldn't just forget about a large policy decision like that if you took a paper off their desk. But, um... You would hope. Yeah, so I think maybe the better corollary then is is for this anonymous author is somebody like Runcorn or um mm -hmm. some yeah, of the other officials in the ministry that are super racist don't um don't like uh when their niece or nephew marries a muggle or a muggle-born person, you know, mm -hmm. um, want there to be pure blood people at the highest offices of the ministry and that kind of thing mm -hmm. who, and, and privileged people who are able to be in those positions, um, who might find some, uh, find somewhere in their in their harder brain to say that some of the more erratic behaviors that the ministry starts doing or the more like actually bringing people in to, uh, to prove their status, mm -hmm. maybe they would take a little bit of issue with that or just like having somebody in charge, like thickness probably was, um, who's super erratic and terrible leader and those sorts of things mm -hmm. would, yeah, would get at their ideas of what, how the ministry should be run and, and the fundamentals of what the government should look like. And so then they're like, all right, maybe we should try to curb some of the more evil things going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned Runcorn. Who, who's this guy? How do we know him? Why do we meet him? So Runcorn works for the ministry and he's the person that, um, Harry impersonates when they, Harry, Ron and Hermione break into the ministry to try to steal the locket, um, that, which is a Horcrux. Mm -hmm. Um, and we get the feeling that Runcorn is a Voldemort apologist or just, uh, a typical racist, pure blood, privileged guy. Yeah, uh, I don't know if he seems because... like a, a Death Eater sympathizer per se. Yeah, people just treat him as though he's intimidating and a general asshole, and he seems to be enjoying the new regime. Right. Um, particularly the conversation between him and Arthur Weasley. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So. He is the sort of person, I guess, who who thrives in this environment. So. Uh, the three folks who Harry, Ron, and Hermione impersonate provide sort of interesting examples um, in this context because Ron turns into this guy Catermol, who um, who seems to have a pretty low profile job. We don't learn too much about him except that his wife is um, under suspicion of having stolen her magic, of not being uh, legitimately in possession of her wand. Um, and he just kind of does his job and keeps his head down and tries to 
affect his wife. Mm-hmm. Hermione impersonates Mafalda Hopkirk, who we meet all the way back in book two when she sends Harry a letter threatening him with expulsion if he breaks any rules. Right. Her we don't find out much about either, except that we can see that she's still working at the ministry, still going to work every day, um, doing doing her job, filling her bureaucratic role. And clearly the ministry couldn't function without people like Mafalda Hopkirk, who seem not to have much of an ideology, or at least don't don't really have any positions that we know about. But they go to work, they do their job, stuff happens, people get letters, people who improperly use magic are threatened with expulsion, yay. Right. And I do, I wish that we had had seen more from these folks in the Harry Potter world. I wish it didn't have to come from outsiders. There's this interesting interesting discussion that Lupin has with uh, with the trio when they're on the run. He shows up at Grimmauld Place and gives them the sort of the quick download on what's going on in the world. And he tells them, well, there's been a takeover at the Ministry. Voldemort is basically in charge right now. And Harry asks, well, what how can people not understand what has happened? Um, how do people not revolt? Why Why isn't there a, a women's march going on? Um, yeah. And Lupin says, what did he say? Here we go. Naturally, many people have deduced what has happened. There's been such a dramatic change in ministry policy in the last few days, and many are whispering that Voldemort must be behind it. However, that is the point. They whisper. They daren't confide in each other, not knowing whom to trust. They're scared to speak out in case their suspicions are true and their families are targeted. Yes, Voldemort is playing a very clever game. Yeah. And that, that, uh, the feeling that you have to whisper, the feeling that you can't speak your mind, that there will be retaliation somehow, um, can make it can make it even more effective to quell dissent than actually doing anything affirmatively to quell dissent. You know, if you just make make people afraid that if they say something, they will bear the brunt of your wrath, then they can just, they can self-censor. They can keep quiet more than they need to. And they can do your job for you. Yeah, and I think there are Obviously, there are people nowadays who are doing more than whispering, even from the outside. Um, but our system is so deeply entrenched that it's still difficult to... I mean, Trump's just in such a big position of power, and mm-hmm. his, the people that he's put in his administration have so much power that it's difficult to completely block everything that they do, even if you are yelling and not just whispering. Mm-hmm. Um but of course, that's just another reason why we need to encourage everyone to vote in the, the midterm elections. Amen to that. Yeah, and that's where I still get stuck. You know, I don't know. I don't know what you're supposed to do if you're Reg Catermall. I don't know what you're supposed to do if you're if you're Arthur Weasley. Um, a lot of folks have pointed out that if this op-ed writer is actually interested in creating 
creating a better world where we're not ruled by madmen, then publishing this op-ed doesn't necessarily get us any closer to that goal. Mm-hmm. It just makes Trump more paranoid. It makes him wonder whether he can trust his people and just potentially makes him even more unpredictable than he was before. Right, because really, what is the goal of, of letting the world know that there's this group of people who are doing that? Like, Right. <laughs> that's not going to help you do it any better. If anything, it'll be harder now. Right. So they just want some credit? Maybe. Yeah. So if you're Kingsley Shacklebolt and you're working as an or in the ministry, do you really stand up and say, hey, by the way, my boss is Lord Voldemort, effectively? Right. And then, well, because Kingsley must have done something because then he ends up on the the Potter Watch radio show. Mm, that's true. Ah, so maybe he did. So, I mean, he's in hiding at some point. We Obviously, we don't know how long he lasted. But that's the other thing, a part of this. I, I have two other thoughts on this, really. Because one is that if you are someone who you and I would agree with politically, who stands for social justice and you know, against inequality and oppression, and you were working in the Trump administration, I don't know many people who could just survive that type of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I remember very close to close after the election in 2016, there was someone who posted this thing who I think she, she was a Muslim woman who was like, I'm a Muslim woman working in the Trump administration. I lasted one day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, at some point also you had just have to think about the toll that that takes on you as a human being. Um, and I have a friend who I will get permission from them before posting this, but, um, I have a friend who until fairly recently was working at an organization that she disagreed, uh, with on a lot of things, especially just their general philosophy and the ideology that is the foundation of their work. Uh, but she felt like she could still do some good there working with people individually, working with clients who came in for their services. And she was able to do that only for so long before just the working environment became unbearable. Mm -hmm. So, I guess that is one another advantage that somebody like Runcorn would have right. <laughs> as someone who is perfectly fine surviving in that environment and can maybe lessen the damage that they do, um, which reminds me of what um, Sheree Moraga told me once. And Sheree Moraga is a um, Chicana feminist author and writer, and she co-wrote the uh, feminist anthology This Bridge Called My Back mm-hmm. uh, with Gloria Anzalua and I got the privilege of meeting her at Syracuse when I was a senior there and she told me that one thing to remember is that allies don't always have to be your friends and people that you want to build a coalition with don't necessarily have to share your values you just have to have a common goal. And so I wonder if one of the things that we should be trying to do is 
ally more with these um, these people who, and some would say, um, John McCain would fit into this category. And <clears throat> I saw a bunch of my Facebook friends and things and different people with mixed feelings about John McCain's death and his legacy as a, whether, you know, American hero or not, considering his imperialist policies and, you know, general ideals. But it seemed like he was one of the few people left um, who call themselves Republicans who are willing to stand up for what the Republican Party used to be about. Um, or maybe the Republican Party was never about that, but people would tell us that's what the Republican Party was about. Um, and so maybe it's it's our one of the things we need to be doing is allying with more of those people because they can survive in that type of environment and they would be able to be hired in the first place in that in this type of administration. And maybe we have a, a common goal um, that we can work toward in the meantime. And then once we have our foot in the door, we can, you know, just push further and further. And eventually we won't be allies anymore and they'll be our adversaries. But we we'll have pushed the envelope a little bit further in one direction. Fair point. Yeah, I don't know how to do that concretely, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where I sort of run up against a brick wall. Well, part of it, I think, part of it is like it's a similar discussion, and it's funny because I'm going to be on the opposite side, so I'm about to contradict myself. Because sometimes people say like, "Oh, this you should try to elect this person or vote for this person because he." he or she is actually electable and they're more palatable to moderate voters. And this person is a democratic socialist, so they can never be elected. Um, and so it is kind of aligning yourself with somebody who's maybe doesn't fit a hundred percent or fit the best with where your ideologies are, but you think they have a better chance of getting things done or, or actually succeeding in, in being at least in the room and then they can advocate for policies that are marginally better. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know you and I had this debate back in the Democratic primary for president in 2016. I also had a similar discussion with our cousins about who to vote for to um, for Minnesota governor. Mm -hmm. um, and that was also frustrating because it was like, supposedly Tim Walls and Swanson, Lori Swanson were in like neck and neck in the polls. And so we, it was like, well, I have to vote for Walls because otherwise Swanson might win and Swanson's terrible. And so, and, uh, even though now I'm blanking on her name, but the, the other candidate was someone that I, it seemed like I matched up with more ideologically speaking. And, if I just had to pick one, I would have picked her, but it seemed like the polls were saying that it should be, it was, I needed to vote for walls. And then Swanson, the, the worst candidate ended up getting last anyways. So it's like how many people voted for walls just because they were afraid of Swanson. And then she wasn't even a threat. So I don't trust polls anymore. And I'm just firmly in the belief that you should vote for the person that best represents you and has energy and that we need to stop like, splitting the difference between people and just go for 
people who can inspire others and bring people out to vote who maybe haven't voted before because it's not like we're going to convince a whole swath of uh, conservatives to vote for Tim Walls anyways. <laughs> so our apologies to our listeners, those of you who aren't deeply invested in Minnesota politics. <laughs> Any which should be. Um, and I think this is a whole whole other debate that you and pri- I will probably keep having for the rest of our lives. Um, I will say that... Harry has an argument sort of like this with, uh, with William, William, I think, in book seven. And uh, Lupin is sort of castigating him for using Expelliarmus, where he could have used a more powerful spell. Or um, or maybe it was because it, it gave him away as being Harry Potter. This was during the, the Battle of the Seven Potters. Right. And Harry says, you know what, that may be the more practical approach um, you you know it may may help us in this battle to just knock the Death Eater out of the sky, or to not not uh, show my cards, not seem as though I'm so naive. But that's not what I do. I I'm Harry Potter. I I shoot to disarm. I don't shoot to kill. That's not what I do. And that is one of the things about him that is so inspiring. That gets people to actually follow him, even though he's a deeply flawed protagonist, and we'd all be much better if Hermione was the hero of the series. Obviously. But, uh, people don't follow him because he triangulates. They follow him because he does his thing, and he believes in his thing. And mm-hmm. you can argue with the thing, um, and people argue with the thing very often. They're like, Harry, maybe maybe don't do that. And Harry is like, no, I'm, I'm doing the thing. And mm-hmm. everybody shakes their head sadly because Harry did the thing. But you know where he stands. Um, and that's coming perilously close to what people say about Trump, actually. Because, you know, you can argue with him, but he says he's going to screw you over. And then, hey, he screws you over. Um, but I, I hear what you're saying as far as supporting people who actually truly stand for something, rather than being the worst of, uh, the, the best of all possible evils. For the record, her name is Aaron Murphy. Sorry, I forgot your name, Aaron. It's been a few weeks. But uh, she was the one I really wanted to vote for, for governor. And then our cousins convinced me otherwise. And then whatever. I mean, I think Tim will still be good. And it's not quite... um, It's not like a huge step down. I just wish that we could all live in a world where... and, And I just don't trust polls. So, anyways. Do you think we've come to any sort of conclusion about... Who has the right idea about this? Do you are you are you with the Weasleys? Are you more with Kingsley? Are you with Snape? Are you with McGonagall and Flitwick? Are you are you with Catamol? Just keep your head down, protect your family. Are you with Runcorn? Find your way in the new regime and then maybe do something about it if you care. You yeah, I think um, I think I'm with Kingsley as always. But I also think that sometimes we can do a better job of realizing what people who we disagree with but have positions of power, what can they do for us and what can we agree on and ally, get, you know, form an alliance on 
without just can just endorsing them right so mm-hmm. some and i think for people who are like you know what they're conservative they are against everything that i stand for um i'm not going to form any sort of alliance with them like i can respect that as well but if we're thinking about what are effective tools and strategies i think we need to keep that in our toolbox um mm-hmm. but i also can't fault anyone who's like you know what even just on a personal level for my own self care and survival, I can't be a part of this organization and I need to get out of here and go the Kingsley route. Um, Mm -hmm. so as usual, it's a little bit of both and depends kind of on the context. And, and I think like McGonagall and Flitwick situation is a little bit different because they're not like shaping policy or preventing bad decisions. They're just like, actually physically trying to prevent kids from being harmed. Right. Um, so if you have the opportunity to do that, that's probably a good thing to do for as long as you can. Yeah. But yeah, I think this, this is a good point to, uh, to recap a little bit from something that we talked about last time Mm -hmm. or give a little, another, uh, um, update. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to take that or should I, I think you should. Okay, so just briefly, last uh, last time we touched on the aftermath of the hurricane in Puerto Rico, um, which had caused an immense amount of destruction in part because the administration's response to the hurricane was so lackluster. And we touched a little bit on the, the racial implications of the Trump administration's response to that catastrophe. It seemed as though they were devoting many fewer resources to reconstruction in Puerto Rico than they would have if this had been a tragedy that affected fewer brown people, not to put too far. Oh, for sure. Um, and so in, in the months since then, um, there hasn't been too much coverage of, uh, of the aftermath of reconstruction. It seems as though most of Puerto Rico does have power restored. So that is something, um, though that's certainly an incredibly low bar. Um, but one recent piece of news that came out is that, um, so according to a study from the Milken Hill Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University, in the six months after the landfall of Hurricane Maria, so after the hurricane itself, um, there have been 2,975 deaths that can be attributed to the hurricane or to, um, to its effects, um, whether that's lack of food, lack of medical care, lack of power, what have you. Um, which is, if it's true, if those are accurate numbers, that would be an absolutely enormous catastrophe, um, easily on par with something like September 11th, 2001. For sure. And the response of the administration has been to say, essentially, these numbers are made up. These are Democrats cooking the books, trying to make me look bad. Just, uh, it's fake news. It's not real. We had a fantastic response to the hurricane. Our administration was there to save people and we, we carried the day. And so this reminded me of classic, else, but, uh, but the general strategy of the Scrimgeour administration, book six, where every day in the papers, Ron is checking to see if anybody we know is dead. Um, or Hermione, I suppose, is checking and Ron is pestering her. And Scrimgeour just says, well, I think we're doing great. We, uh, we've arrested Stan Shunpike, major Death Eater mastermind there. 
uh, we're gonna we're gonna bring Harry Potter onto the team. He's gonna tell you what a great job we're doing, and everything is fine. Your ministry is strong, and that that parallel just made me deeply uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know if I have any any lessons that we can draw from that, or encouraging suggestions, because. Being like Scrimshore never really leads you to a good place. Especially, I mean, Scrimshore is another one of those people who we all disagree with and had a completely misguided strategy, but had some morals and fundamentals or um, core values that he stuck to. Mm. And in the end, didn't give up any information to Voldemort, um, which was helpful. Um, but yeah, we don't need to really, I'm not one to praise Rufus Scrimshaw either, but considering that, but he's, even then he's much too, too good of a comparison to compare him to our president at the time. So, so yeah, on that note, <laughs> it was nice to get back on the swing of things and uh, and get back to basics with a podcast with just the two of us. Um, so we're hoping to have some more guests um, on the pod coming up soon. And um, as always, listeners, feel free to let us know of any ideas you might have for topics for episodes um, or if you would like to be on or anything else. So or if you have you have a harry potter mystery you've been wondering about or yeah if you have a trivia question that you think i can stump my brother with this time because apparently that didn't work not this time Alrighty. well good luck to everyone out there um continuing to forge along in our political and social nightmare and uh yeah hopefully you'll hear us again soon yes, indeed until then be like Kingsley. Be like Kingsley. All right, brother. You have a good one. Have a good one, brother. <laughs>